Well, good morning, church, or afternoon or evening, whatever time it might be as you're listening to this recording. Uh, it's kind of funny because a couple of weeks ago when I had the privilege of preaching at Christ's Covenant in person, uh, we actually ran into some technical difficulties. And so, unfortunately, uh, uh, we weren't able to upload that sermon that I was preaching uh, to you all. Um, but this is kind of a take two in many ways. And so, uh, especially for you who were not able to make it uh, in person due to health concerns or whatever have you in this, uh, this season of COVID, um, consider this message for you, especially and in particular. Um, because right now, as I'm delivering this message again a second time, this is with you in mind. Um, as way of a brief introduction, my name is Rich Brown. I serve as one of the pastors in our own presbytery in the Blue Ridge. Over the past almost 10 years now, I've been blessed to serve within the Blue Ridge Presbytery between the cities of Lynchburg and Charlottesville in particular. Uh, prior to that, I studied for the ministry, for pastoral ministry in particular, at Liberty University, both in undergrad and also in the seminary, and took a few years off and am now actually finishing up my postgraduate studies as a lifelong learner over at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. I'm working on my THM right now and may go on for the dissertation and the PhD, uh, but we'll see. I'm halfway there and at this point, I'm about ready to call it a day, I think. So we'll see if I go on. But uh, as of last August, uh, just a few months ago, really, um, I also had the privilege of joining the temporary session at Christ's Covenant. Um, in other words, being able to serve you all from a distance as you are looking for a new pastor and in the middle of uh, many transitions in the church's life. And so in many ways, it was a privilege and a joy and honor for me to be able to worship with you finally in person a couple of Sundays ago on October the 18th. And it still is a privilege right now as I'm re-recording this message for you all uh, to be able to share the word of God with you. And so as we transition now to the preaching of the word of Christ, even from a distance right now, uh, as I'm recording this from the comfort of my own home, and as you probably are doing the same as you're listening to this in your own home or on the go, on the road, wherever you might be, um, I would like to turn our attention, though, to Galatians 5, verses 25 and 26, the very tail end of Galatians 5. As we transition into reading the very last chapter, Galatians 6, of this book that Paul wrote, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for the church in Galatia. Uh, in a very remarkable way, the very last two verses of Galatians 5 just dovetail so wonderfully into our, our key text from Galatians 6 this morning. And so again, I'd like to invite us to turn our attention to the reading of God's word, which comes to us from Galatians 5.25 all the way to Galatians 6, verse 18, the very end of our book. The word of God says this in Galatians 5, 25 and following. Hear the word of God. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks that he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. 
For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor does uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Well, church, with that in mind, let's go ahead and pray and come before our Lord and his throne of grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as we have read your word, you are the one who has given it to us, and we recognize it as such. God, we thank you that even in the midst of a strange season, a season of COVID, a season where a lot of us are separated and distanced from each other, and we feel the lack of of intimacy in our relationships, and even the very body of Christ, we feel a distance at times in this awkward season that we find ourselves in. You yourself are still so close to the brokenhearted. You are a comfort, the God of all comfort. You are a rock who never fails us, a foundation upon which we build. You are a mighty fortress. And we who are saved by grace, who wear your righteousness, so to speak, when we run to you, we are safe, as the psalmist tells us. So, Father, use this time as your word is opened, as our hearts are enlivened by the very grace of you, our God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, as he is proclaimed. Use this time to transform us, to shape us, to mold us more into the image of Christ. And so we pray all of this in Christ's most holy and precious name. Amen. Well, church, our text this morning can be neatly summarized under two made headings, so to speak. And you might have even seen this as you are either reading your Bibles and and caught a sense of uh, one or two major sections here, or even as you just were listening in and you kind of caught the transition there. Um, In our Bibles, we even see two headings over verses 1 through 10 of Galatians 6 and verses 11 down through 18. And in many ways, that is how I want to segment our own sermon this morning. See, the first point for this morning, a two-part sermon, so to speak, is this, that we as the church bear the burdens of one another. Again, this is Galatians 6, 1 through 10, but that second major heading or that second major point is that Christ our Savior bears our burdens. And so again, we see two major points here, that we bear one another's burdens, but also that Christ has borne our burden. Now, as we have arrived at the very end of Galatians, this book that Paul wrote to a church in modern-day Turkey that was going through much suffering and chaos and confusion, it's ironic that we ourselves are also winding up at the end of our calendar year, even as we're ending our series on Galatians. One year ago to the very day, not one of us could have ever anticipated back in 2019 what the year of 2020, the year of COVID or the Rona, as many of my friends and I affectionately call it, would bring us. Many of us have had our employments, our livelihoods, and truly our normal way of life just drastically altered. And yet in the positive, many of us have also perhaps found ourselves with a lot more free time to to branch out and to discover new interests. Personally, I've had the privilege of remaining productive myself during the craziness that has been 2020. I found myself taking up new hobbies to pass the downtime. And one of my favorite hobbies, aside from having more time to go hiking or bicycling or hanging out with friends, doing trivia night every week with with my uh, buddies down the street from me, one of those major hobbies that I took up was woodwork though. This new hobby is something that I hadn't really done much of in years past although I always had an affinity and an appreciation for it. 
Over the past couple of months in particular, I've actually had the privilege and the opportunity of building and refining more than a few pieces of furniture around my house, uh, ranging from new end tables to even a coffee table to even building a brand new a computer desk, or what I like to call a work-from-home battle station, which a lot of us are probably familiar with. But as I was constructing all these useful items and kind of bringing new life to my living space, where I've spent a lot of my time living the last year especially, I couldn't help but notice that as I was building these things, and as I was working with the wood, no two pieces of wood even all of the pine wood that I was working with in particular, were exactly the same. Between the sanding, the edging, the rounding, staining, and applying just seemed like endless multiple layers of polyurethane, um, even upwards of like 10 coats on one of the pieces I was working on, just polyurethane upon polyurethane. I noticed that every stroke that I attended to the wood with required a certain degree of precision and attention. I couldn't help but realize that each one of our relationships, in many ways though, operates the same way. See, like two pieces of pine wood, even cut from the same board, so to speak, no two people are the same. Nor are we able, in our own uh, natural limitations, able to give each person the same degree of time or attention or care. Much like that pine wood that I was working on and no two pieces being the same, no two people that we serve or that we bear are the same. Think about it this way. The ways in which we care and devote ourselves to our families, our closest friends, they rightly look different when we compare how we care for those people Versus maybe, maybe how we care for our coworkers or our neighbors. And yet we know from scripture, even Galatians 5.14, as my friend Pastor Don Ward was sharing with you the week prior to this message, that we are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's a lofty goal ahead of us. And yet we realize within our own limitations that there's that tension. You know, our love on one hand, it should be reasonable and fitting as meets the occasion in front of us, but it also needs to remain generous and charitable and liberal in the sense of giving much of ourselves to others. Yet if you're like me, you've probably found yourself often depleted because you tend to err on one side or the other. For me, I often end up usually feeling empty as I pour myself out, maybe too much even for the sake of other people. And I found that oftentimes we as Christians who have a strong desire to love and to love our neighbor as ourself and to love as Christ has loved us, we often, probably more than the other extreme, have a tendency to err on the side of loving too much. In other words, loving too excessively from our own strength and not the very Holy Spirit who lives within us. But of course, there are two extremes there, right? You know, we can either love too excessively or we may love in such a way that is so um, empty and, and from a place of disenfranchisement due to uh, our inherent selflessness, uh, the inherent selflessness of Christian love, rather, that it requires. We can often become disenfranchised with that kind of dutifulness that we might decide to only reserve it for a precious few people in our lives. And then become inward focused. See, either extreme, either loving too excessively and obsessively with somebody else around you or many people around you, which then burns us out, or loving too restrictively, both of them have a certain appeal to them by our natures, whether it be extroversion or introversion alike, but they also have major downsides. Now, if I had to put this question out there for you, of, you know, which one do you think the Galatians might have fallen into? Either loving too excessively or loving too uh, frugally, so to speak. What do you think that they would have done? How would you characterize their love? You know, as we've gone through this series on Galatians, as you've heard of their care for other people and all, 
you might say, yeah, they, they seem to love almost too excessively. And if that was your answer, then I, I agree with you. I think that was exactly what their error was. You know, loving too much, so to speak, but not from the spirit, but rather their own strength. You may recall, for instance, that in Galatians 4, verses 12 through 20, the apostle Paul expressed that this church was even so eagerly, overly eager to embrace him even, that they tried to receive him as if he was an angel sent from heaven. Even going so far as to act as if Paul was somehow on the same level as Christ Jesus, their Lord. In fact, they were so charitable toward him that Paul even insisted that they would have sacrificed their own sight. They would have gouged out their own eyes in his own words just to have Paul in their presence. But talk about an obsession with him that would lead to idolatry. Now, at first glance, this kind of obsessive love, this this very outward-focused love, it may sound noble, even honorable to us, because a lot of us desire that we ourselves could love that way. But Paul notes that their error was that they were not seeking to live in light of the gospel of Christ, but they were actually trying to make a kind of new law regarding Christian love unto themselves. It was a law regarding love that ended up actually twisting scripture. In this case, they misunderstood the command to love in such a way that they ended up idolizing well-spoken teachers. And it wasn't just Paul, but these well-spoken teachers in the midst of the Galatians were preaching heresy. And as such, the people of the church, as they gave themselves and their hearts over to other teachers who were teaching a false gospel, a different gospel, to use Paul's words. They ended up misunderstanding core doctrines. They misunderstood the meaning of circumcision, for instance, as a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace. And so they made uh, that act of circumcising circumcising their flesh on par with true holiness before a righteous God. In essence, they ended up replacing the gospel of grace with a man-centered commandment. They confuse the purpose of the law, the good law of God, which is chiefly set to drive us to our need for Christ and to recognize his perfect fulfillment of all righteousness. The Galatians desire to be under a kind of keep the law, obtain righteousness paradigm rather than living as children of the promise. And so Paul was indeed in anguish over them. How could he not be in anguish over them? How could he not desire that Christ would be formed in them so that they might live in the freedom that the gospel alone provides to ruin sinners? Even sinners who often try to replace God's love and God's gospel of grace with our own law and our own way of doing things. This all, as a way of recap, brings us right to Galatians 5.25. See, here in Galatians 5.25, we see how Paul urged them with his truth. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. It follows that when we know the liberating power of the gospel from sin and its dominion over us, we are rightly compelled to walk in accordance with that truth, that we are to keep in step with the Spirit. See, rather than giving ourselves over to the works of the flesh, the end of which things is only corruption, as Galatians 6 tells us, we as believers are called to live and see the fruit of the Spirit have its way in our lives. And so out of that fruit, love and serve one another. How? As Christ loved and served us. See, through a gospel-minded love that is produced by the very Spirit of Christ, we are to be as servants to one another. But how do we properly serve one another in a healthy way? Without falling into either trap of excessiveness or apathy, loving too much out of our own vainglory, or loving too uh, frugally and, and withholding our love, from people, even our neighbors around us? How do we avoid those traps, those pitfalls on either side of us and love properly? 
Well, Galatians 6, 1 and following, gives us this answer. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, though, so that you might not be tempted in the same way. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ by doing that. For if anyone thinks that he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. It's a wrong way of looking at things. The Word of God tells us that when we see our brother or our sister in need falling into any number of sins that are not in keeping with God's law, we ourselves are to first keep watch on ourselves. And we do that by recognizing who we are, but also whose we are, who we belong to. See, Galatians, again, reminds us of this truth that we ourselves are spiritual. We who are believers are indwelt by the Spirit. We belong to Christ. But we ourselves were also ruined sinners, without hope, save in the sovereign mercy of God. We are ruined sinners who have known, however, though, and felt the redeeming love of God in Christ. And so, therefore, as we approach one another in love, we ought to seek to echo the very love which God himself first showed us. We tend to others with a genuine spirit-led love only as we come to them with a spirit of gentleness, of forbearance, and of humility. See, as we recognize our own fallen condition, our own proclivities to sin against our God and our own common vices, we come more adequately prepared to extend that love and forgiveness that Christ first showed us to those who are snagged and even still snagged in the snare of sin. Like a good father or mother who quiets a little baby who is fussing or pouting, we tend to those who are troubled by sin with a fitting measure of care and attention, though. No one in their right mind would tend to a little uh, eight-month-old baby who is crying or pouting by overreacting. Rather, they would hush their baby in love and seek to remove the baby from the situation and care for the little one who is troubled by also respecting the needs of others around them. In the same way as well, it's like applying that proper amount of stain to a piece of pine wood, like I was referring to earlier. You know, applying too much would not be proper or fitting for the end result, but applying too little will not yield the best result either. And so in many ways, like as we tend to people who are uh, unaware or those who need a proper amount of care even, how we measure correction and restoration in our relationships is so circumstantial and it requires a great need of awareness, wisdom, controlled strength, and a, a willingness as well to get a little stain on our hands, so to speak, as we seek to furnish our brothers in Christ and to beautify our sisters in the Lord. See, restoration itself, which Paul alludes to here in Galatians 6, that idea of restoration is a healing term. It's not meant for the deconstruction or the destruction of the person that we are seeking to restore. It's meant to heal them. Throughout Scripture, the notion of restoring another believer is that of returning to a former condition. When we begin to see the destruction and the corruption of sin in the lives of others, we're rightfully upset or bothered by it. But we who are spirit-led, who are mindful of the things of the Lord, do well in every occasion to be gentle rather than being provoked to anger. And we ourselves are to remain humble as we keep watch on ourselves rather than envying the fleeting pleasures of sin that that person might be enjoying for a brief moment that may also tempt us. So we must keep guarding ourselves and watch that we do not fall into that same flood of debauchery that our brother or sister might be experiencing as we seek to correct them and restore them. Consider this. The idea of bearing one another's burdens, though, 
it's not just marked by a sense of care for them or devotion to them. The idea of bearing their burden is also marked by this sense of passivity. The other day, just to illustrate this, many of us from my home church back in Lynchburg, Virginia, at Mercy Presbyterian, were helping one of my best friends move. As a family of five, three little ones in particular, he and his wife had nearly 100 boxes, no joke, 100 boxes ready to go. And also, of course, plenty of heavy furniture to be lifted as they were about to load the truck, the U-Haul, and drive a good ways away from town. But my friend, who is a former police officer and quite the hard worker, to say the least, even before we could arrive to help him with his move, you know, about 10 of us or so who were bound to show up that Saturday, he ended up bearing much of his own load, as much as he could, and ended up moving about 80 boxes, his wife included, on their own, even before the rest of us could show up. Talk about a hard work ethic. And yet even then, there were still, of course, those certain items that still required a set of two hands and strong backs to carry. And so in many ways, we also sought to bore his burden with him. And by doing that, by carrying that heavy furniture for them and the extra 20 or so boxes that were left over, we were able to extend love and service toward my friend and his wife and his precious family. Throughout scripture, the Greek phrase that's translated here, this, this idea of bearing one another's burdens, it connotes an active sense of duty for the other person. See, in the same way that my friend had a sense of duty toward his own family, and we ourselves had a sense of duty for him as being a member of our church and a friend and a brother in Christ, we carry that notion with us. But that idea, again, of bearing the load has that passive tone in which the thing or the person being carried or born is the object of service and love. They are not the one who is active in their duty, but rather the object and the recipient of these wonderful uh, services and, and ways of loving them that we extend to them. This may sound like common sense, but the beauty of our bearing one another's burdens is that in many ways it illustrates certain key aspects of the gospel of Jesus Christ to one another. Consider this, that in Mark 10, 45, Christ proclaimed of himself that the Son of Man came not to be served, passive, but rather to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so as we love one another, as Christ loved us sacrificially, we so fulfill the law of Christ and we sow the seeds that will in time bear fruit accordingly. For what God sows through each one of us as believers will never return back to him and his kingdom fruitless. For our God is never mocked. What we sow, we will reap. What we sow for his kingdom, he will reap through us. What we sow to our flesh, however, and this is the warning, will also bring forth fruit that is corrupted. So while there's that promise, there's also the warning to us. But know this, Christian, what he sows through you, through your Christ-honoring service and your love for Christ and his people, he will reap in due time. One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 126, says this, that those who go out weeping bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing their sheaves with them. And that same principle is right here, nestled within Galatians 6. See, verses 8 through 10 tell us the following. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Only let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Church, I know that this year has been rough on each one of us in so many ways. 
And that probably goes without saying. For as much as we may want to tuck away these hurts and the pains and the trials and the tribulations that so many of us, if not every one of us even here, have faced during the year of 2020, the year of COVID, we don't do well to do that. I mean, we all feel the tiredness that this year has brought. Between a real fear of illness, of contracting a novel virus that we are still trying to figure out a year later, to debilitating external factors that are all around us that force our way of lives to be changed, to carrying within our own souls weary and worn out spirits, as we still seek to be a, to be a faithful people within a nation that is so quickly just deserting and turning us back against God, we as believers feel crushed. We feel like we are exiles in this world. We feel emptied out. Perhaps we and you feel abandoned. But know that our God is faithful. He's still the same yesterday, today, and forever. Christ himself is still king over his church, and he is still ruling and reigning over us in love, never failing to make that intercession over us, his blood pleading over us, even our darkest of sins over us as our faithful high priest. He knows your weaknesses, church. He knows your frailties. He knows your shortcomings, but he is still building you up and he will continue to fortify you, his people. He has not failed you and he will not fail you. And so as we seek to pour out our own selves for the sake of others, my encouragement to you, the people of God at Christ's covenant, and all of you who may be listening in on this even, is that we do not neglect being filled daily by Christ, who is our river of life. Brothers and sisters, do not grow weary of doing good. Lean on one another as you serve and love others in his name, even the hardest of seasons that you might be going through. But more so, lean personally upon Christ himself. Christ who, as the hymn writer once put it, is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. Because the streams on earth that we've already tasted, more deep we will drink above. Christ himself is the sower in the vineyard of God, not us ultimately. And so realize that in due time, our master gardener will reap what he has sown. And so we, by virtue of the covenant, by virtue of being in union with Christ, will also enjoy the fruit of Christ's labors in our midst in due time. And so it's only fitting that as we now transition from this first part of our passage, Galatians 6, 1 through 10, about bearing our own burdens and bearing the burdens of others even in our midst, that we do not neglect the gospel truth that is especially prevalent within Galatian, Galatians 6, 11 through following. Because Christ and all of his glory is on display right here in these following few verses as we as we continue to, to bring our sermon series to a close here. If we seek to bear the burdens of others properly and rightfully, we have to do that with a gospel-centered vantage point. We have to do that as we find rest within the risen Savior, not ourselves, not merely a helper, but a Savior. Christ, who bore us. And so this is our second and our last point for us this morning. I wonder, to illustrate this matter, I wonder if you might remember the days when a quarter could actually buy you something. <laughs> you know, 25 cents. Uh, I myself was born in the late 1980s myself, and I can still remember the days when coins were actually useful. <laughs> Maybe you can as well. 
needless to say, uh, a coin is put to good use um, only, of course, if it is a proper coin. And proper coins have two sides, both heads and tails. It's no good if it's lopsided or if it's uneven or what have you. And in many ways, that idea of a heads and a tails relationship is right here in our own passage. See, if Galatians 6, 1 through 10 was essentially the tail side of our passage, the response, so to speak, Galatians 6, 11 through 15 and following even with the benediction at the end of this is more than the head. It is the primary part of our passage, in fact. And so our responsibility as the church to bear one another in response to the head, the following passage ahead of us, the second half of Galatians 6, our responsibility is only as good as when it's conjoined to the head side of this passage or the head side of the coin, so to speak. That being Christ and his work upon the cross for us. Christ, the very one who loved us and who gave himself for us. If I may give you a a paraphrase of the Apostle Paul's admonition to the Galatian church, rather than, you know, repeating and rereading all of this for us this very moment, a brief recap of this passage would go something like this. In all caps, Paul's own pen, do not boast in the flesh, boast in the cross. Again, do not boast in the flesh, boast in the cross. See, those who seek to make a showing before others will often seek to do good in order to puff themselves up rather than loving one another as a response to the gospel of grace. They seek to boast in their own works, the works of their own flesh, the works of their own hands. But for the Galatians, this was their error. See, rather than recognizing the fulfillment of the ceremonial law of God in Christ, as Paul then refers to circumcision as the main picture here and the illustration that he himself uses, this Galatian church sought to cling to their own understanding of the law of God and the ceremonies that attended such law all the more as they then even sought to look good and perform before other people. Rather than recognizing that we as believers who were once not God's people were spiritually circumcised in Christ upon the cross, as Colossians 2, 11 through 12 point out to us, and Romans 4 and so many other passages, and the very fact that we have died to ourselves as such, that Christ himself is our circumcision, and that we've so identified with him and his cross and have been raised to life eternal with Christ, many of the Galatians sought to nevertheless go through with the former things. In other words, circumcising circumcising their own flesh for the sake of looking good before other people. You know, are you this or are you not? Do you do this or do you not? And they ended up essentially creating a form of classism before their brothers and sisters and division over what they would do and how they interpreted the law of God on their own terms, just so that they would feel vindicated before not only God, but man. This is self-justification at its worst. See, these Galatians who are falling into this form of, of heresy, this a vile way of looking at the law of God, this misunderstanding at best, or at worst, rather, it caused them to choose to boast in their perceived goodness and lawfulness rather than believing that no amount of lawfulness on their part could ever earn them God's favor. Now, friends, I realize that this talk of circumcision itself it may seem a bit obscure and even archaic to us in today's age because we don't think of this old sign and seal of the covenant of grace that was administered to the people of God under the old covenant in the Old Testament. There is still this truth here for us, even though circumcision itself might not be the issue for us. There's this principle here that stands above the circumstance itself. See, we ourselves, we still live in very much the same culture as the Galatians. 
It's a culture that still tries to find justification before others. We are still prone to finding our identity and our worth in other ways. As simple as it sounds, it might be where we shop, the kind of clothes that we wear, the car that we drive, the place that we live. In all these things, we're tempted to seek after honor before other people. And it might even come down to how we use our own words at times. You know, how we seek to impress other people with our intellect or our knowledge, our prowess, so to speak, when it comes to engaging in conversation and communication. In all of these things, this hubris, this, this pride is so detrimental to how we love and serve our neighbor. And so we might feel, as we do these things, for a short while, vindicated in our comparison to others who might dress or shop or live or talk or function differently than how we do. But each one of these things that we make to be issues, these are deadly things in the household of God. These are deadly comparisons that we create in our own selves and they cause division. For in our comparisons, in our desperation for self-worth, we diminish our reliance upon the gospel of Jesus, which alone gives us that worth and that identity which we all long for. In the words of Paul in Galatians 6, 14 through 15, he says this, Far be it from me to boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which, by this cross, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Because neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but rather a new creation. The thing that that circumcision, that sign and seal points to the new creation. We are a new creation, church, in Christ. We are circumcised, spiritually speaking, with him. And yet each one of us is prone to fall away from this kind of understanding and to drift away from, from believing and resting in our true worth, Christ himself. And we end up either taking away from the magnitude of the cross of our Lord Jesus or seeking to add to it. See, this gospel truth, it just sounds way too simple to us. This gospel truth that we know from 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says this, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, meaning Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. We feel in our hearts a sense that we still need to add to the merits of Christ in order to appeal to God. See, we're often tempted to act as if it's kind of this equation of Jesus plus my good works, what I bring to the table equals righteousness, rather than Jesus plus nothing equals my salvation, my justification my righteousness, for it is not my own. It is his, and he gives it to me. My friends, we often seek to add to the gospel because we forget just how marvelous the justifying work of Jesus alone and what he alone could do is. And so we seek to gain a sense of worth in lesser things rather than the cross and boasting in the cross. Now, I realize that that word justification might be lost on us at first glance, for not all of us have brushed up on our theology and our systematic theology at that and books and whatnot. So to provide a very clear definition of justification, I want us to consider what the Westminster Larger Catechism tells us about justification, how it defines the word, as it pulls from scripture all over. Here's this definition from 400 years ago from the reformers themselves. Justification 
is an act of God's free grace unto sinners in which he pardons all of their sins, accepts and accounts their persons righteous in his sight. Not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed to them and received by faith alone. See, we have an already completed, perfect, fully furnished salvation given to us by our Savior, Jesus Christ, with nothing more to add to it. My favorite pastor and hero of the faith from 100 years ago, J. Gresham Machen, who was the one who founded Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, along with the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, he put it this way in his notes on Galatians. In his own words, he said, salvation by character, salvation by our love for God or by our love for our fellow men, salvation by, quote unquote, making Christ master in the life, salvation by complete surrender. These are all just differing forms of the one central error, which seeks salvation and human merit. And they all alike come under condemnation in Paul's polemic to the Galatians. Church, know that the law, it only pronounces a curse upon all who disobey. There is no hope, in other words, in the law of God. For as good and perfect as it is, we ourselves have already broken it. In fact, even by being born, by being of the very seed of Adam and Eve, we ourselves cannot find any solace within the law because Our head, Adam, already broke it. And so we must have a new head. We must have a new covenant keeper. Unlike the covenant breaker, Adam, a covenant keeper who would stand in our place, who would fulfill the law of God in our place. And that covenant keeper alone is Jesus. Jesus alone is the one who fulfilled the law in its entirety, along with all righteousness. And yet who from eternity past, before the creation of the world, he chose to undertake the just penalty of the law on behalf of us covenant breakers. That is grace. We didn't deserve the promise of eternal life, nor the sweet communion with God, our Father, by Christ's own blood. But by his grace, by his blood, we have been redeemed and forgiven. All to the praise and the honor and the glory of his grace. So that we might not boast in our own selves, brothers and sisters, but we might find our boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, who again loved us and gave himself for us. And so as we conclude as we seek to to bear the burdens of one another, as we seek to apply this passage in our own daily lives, I would charge us with this reminder that we not forget that we have in Christ a living Savior, one who already in his own flesh bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Church, by his wounds... And by his wounds alone, you have been healed. Hallelujah. What a savior. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that in you we have plentiful redemption, that you may be feared and revered, O God. God, we thank you that by the very merit, the very work of Christ who stands in our place, we have forgiveness. We have access to your throne of grace, boldness and confidence, not fear or trembling, but a sincere affection that draws us to you. God, we thank you that in you, we have that plentiful redemption. And in you, we have not merely an example of faith. We don't merely have a helper 
who tends to our own good works and helps us get the rest of the way. No, rather in you, O Lord, we have a Savior who alone stands in our place, one in whom our faith is cast upon Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Master, our friend. And so I can't help but be reminded of the prayers of those who've even gone before. I think of the Puritans as they considered this new life that awaits us. And in their own words, as they said the following, until that day of life dawns above, let there be unrestrained fellowship with Jesus. Until fruition comes, may we ourselves enjoy the earnest of our inheritance and the first fruits of the Spirit. Until we finish our course with joy, may we pursue it with diligence and in every part display the resources of the Christian. And so adorn the doctrine of you, our God, in all these things. And Father, we pray the same thing as well, that we would seek to be a people that seeks to adorn the gospel of grace, that we would attend to others with a spirit of thanksgiving and joy and gladness as we fellowship together and as we await that day that is coming, the day of glory, when there will be no more viruses, no more masquerading, no more putting forth our own performance, but a day when we will find ourselves fully met by the grace of God in Christ. And that there will be no seeking to run after earthly things to cover us, but we will have with unbridled eyes, so to speak, Christ in all of his glory, the Lamb of God before us for all eternity, the one who is our light and our lamp who never goes out, Christ alone. And so we pray this in his mighty and holy and powerful name. Amen. Well, church, as you go about your week, I would encourage you to hear this this benediction from the Lord that comes to us from the very tail end of Galatians. Galatians 6, verses 16 and following say this, As for all who walk by this peace, receive the peace and mercy of God. May that peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And so church, this is for you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. My prayer is that we go in his peace this very day. Know that Christ loves you and that he's with you until the end of the age. Go in his peace.